Thanks for listening to Inside the Crime. You'll soon hear from several of those closest to the case and help remind you of who they are and what their connections are. We've built an interactive family tree on our website where you can learn more about the key figures in this story. You'll also find an easy-to-follow interactive map of Porterstown Lane as it appeared in 1971 with all the key locations clearly marked out with handy explainers. You'll find it all at newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Now, back to the podcast. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we heard how Una Linsky's body was found up the Dublin mountains two months after she went missing. It was just hard to take. Do you know that a young girl, our next door neighbour, our cousin, first cousin, was found like that? We also heard how Porterstown Lane became a hostile environment for Martin Conmey, Marty Kerrigan and Dick Donnelly. The Linskys were convinced they'd killed Una and not long after her body was found, an act of misplaced vengeance claimed Marty's life. Somebody has taken your life because they hated you, because they thought you did something that you didn't do. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll go inside the courtroom. The boys hoped the discovery of Una's body would reveal who her actual killer was. When it didn't, Martin and Dick were charged with her murder. The poor mother used to be praying in a church across the road that justice would be done, you know? Knowing they were completely innocent, the boys put all their faith in Lady Justice. Surely their nightmare would soon be over. Even after all that happened, you still think the truth is going to come out. As we know, Una Linsky went missing on the 12th of October, 1971. She stepped off a bus from work that evening and never made it home. Less than two weeks later, the Garda murder squad had signed confessions from Martin Conmey and Marty Kerrigan. But even with those admissions, charges were not brought straight away. Without a body, it was much harder to build a case. Not impossible, but definitely harder. And then, two months later... Una's remains were found in a shallow grave, almost 40 kilometres from Porterstown Lane. The discovery of her body didn't advance the murder squad's case against their main suspects. But equally, it didn't support their claims of innocence. To this day, we don't know how Una died. And her killer, or killers, didn't leave any clues up the mountains. On Sunday, the 5th of March, 1972, three months after Marty Kerrigan was killed, a decision was made to bring charges against Martin Connemy and Dick Donnelly. Martin couldn't believe it. No, it came as a shock. I was staying in Dublin and with a brother of Dick's, and actually Dick was there as well, and, and Dick dropped me home. And... Uh, they tried to stop Dick's car on the way coming from, from uh, Dublin. A guard from Dublin and he tried to pull Dick out and uh, Dick wasn't, like, at the time we weren't too impressed with guards, obviously. And Dick was a big, strong man. He said, you take a bigger man, a better man than you to pull me out of this car. After refusing to step out of the car, Dick sped off and the two pals continued their journey home, leaving the guards in their wake. It's hard to blame them, given their previous experience in Trim Garda Station. However, 
it didn't take long for the guards to catch up, as Martin's sister Mary now remembers. I have clear memory of that. It was the 5th of March. It was a Sunday. And it was really a beautiful sunny day. And it was just, I'd say, be about, I don't know, half 12, one coming up to one o'clock because my mother was getting the dinner ready. But because it was so nice, I know I was outside in the yard. And I think I was in kind of the hay shed when the car drove into the yard real quick and got out and he said, the guards are coming, they're trying to arrest like Dick or whatever. And um, I remember feeling frightened. So I went into the kitchen and guards appeared from everywhere around the sheds. Like they must have come across the fields and everything. Jeez, must be about five or six of them, at least. They all come into the house now, and my poor mother there crying, and Jesus. And you're charged with murder then? Brian's a trimming charge. Was I think it was a peace commissioner or something that had to be there, and then he was there, and we were charged, and then two of us were taken off to Mount Jay. So. And was that in. your first experience? Oh, yeah, yeah. Stripped naked inside there and put into these photographs taken, you know. Talk about humiliation. After being charged with Una's murder, Martin and Dick were remanded in custody, but they were later released on bail as they awaited trial for Una Linsky's murder. Neither of them could believe that they were headed for the dock. But as Mary says here, it was also oddly comforting because they thought they'd finally be heard, really heard, and more importantly, believed. In some ways, the fact that they were charged, it was a relief when they got over the shock of it. It, this is no, this will work out, this will work out. Because the, the word, the phrase I heard over and over again is, it'll all come out in court. We'll, we'll be able to tell what happened, you know. They'll, there was all this conversation going on in our house around that time was, they'll be under oath. The guards will have to tell the truth. They'll have to say what they did to them because they'll be under oath. They, you couldn't commit perjury. And I remember my mother saying it to Martin's solicitor at the time. They were sitting, often like sit out in the car and she'd take her notes like, and the solicitor just laughed. Three months later, on the morning of Wednesday, the 28th of June, 1972, Mr. Justice Seamus Henchy left his chambers and marched into the Central Criminal Court. His arrival was met by a booming voice. All rise, his tipstaff roared, the words bouncing off the cold walls, startling those in the public gallery to their feet. Once the judge had taken his place on the bench at the top of the courtroom, everyone else settled back into the wooden pews. With all now uncomfortable in their seats, Martin Connolly and Dick Donnelly were told to stand for their arraignment. Both pleaded not guilty to the murder of Una Linsky and a jury of 12 men was sworn in to hear their trial. Back then, women were automatically exempt from jury service. Unlike men, they had to apply for permission to be even considered for selection. The prosecutor opened his case by telling the jurors they'd hear evidence of the two accused men being on Porterstown Lane at the same time Una was abducted. 
it was obvious right from the start that placing them on the lane during that 15-minute window after Una stepped off the bus on Ferry House Road was absolutely vital. Martin had made a false confession to that effect, but he was sure the jury would ignore it once they heard how it was beaten out of him. Aside from that, he wondered why the prosecutor was so confident he could prove it. To orientate the jurors, small maps were handed to them with various homes and other points of interest clearly marked out for them to follow. Much larger maps were mounted on boards around the courtroom for all to see. To Mary, who was in the public gallery, it felt like she'd just stepped onto a movie set. It just didn't feel real. The theatrics of the whole thing did catch my attention. The fingers in the lapel and the way they would look away from the witness when they were asking them a question. They'd look away from them. And it was all this, you know, my lord and my learned friend and all that. And even that time, they had, um, I think they're called tip staff. You know, when the judge, if we were out in the round hall, and if a judge was coming and this fellow, like, you know, everyone having to move out of the way and the theatrics of it were probably in some ways maybe fascinating, you know, as a young person seeing all this. Using a large-scale map, some key distances were shared with the jury. They were told it was 676 yards from the entrance to Porterstown Lane on the Ferry House Road to the ESB pylon, where it's believed Una was abducted from. From the pylon to the Linsky's house was 775 yards, roughly five lengths of Croke Park. That's how close Una was to making it home. Not far from the pylon was a bridge. The guard the mapper described it as a short stone or concrete wall on both sides of the road with a stream running underneath. Just beyond the bridge was a gateway leading into a field. At this corner, the road widens, and when asked by the judge if you could turn a car at that point, the witness said it would be quite easy to do so. If Una was abducted around about where the ESB pylon was, many routes could have been taken to where her body was found. The shortest and most sensible distance by road was 23 miles, going through Clonee, Lucan, Clondalkin and Tala. The jurors now familiar with the various crime scenes the court adjourned for lunch. I would mostly have been up in the gallery again. Um, I remember being there with Katie. A lot of it, particularly the stuff that was held in camera, was, you know, what they used to call legal debates. So I would sometimes just walk up to Henry Street, yeah. And, um, my mother and my father, like, were witnesses. They were getting expenses for lunch and probably weren't using the full amount. My mother gave me some of the extra money one day and I bought a new pair of shoes. And I just said to my friend, well, at least I got a new pair of shoes out of it. And I know I probably didn't realise the seriousness of it. I think we didn't because we knew they didn't do it. We knew there was no evidence. The Connemys knew there was no evidence. The Donnellys and the Kerrigans knew it too but the two pals wouldn't have been put on trial if the state didn't think they had a case to answer. And as the trial went on, a clearer picture would come into focus. As the last known person to see Una alive, 
her cousin Anne Gohan was a key witness. Establishing a precise timeline was essential and when asked, she was absolutely certain of the time they stepped off that bus. Without hesitation, she said it was seven minutes to seven. Exactly. Later, Dick's barrister asked her to tell him the time without looking at her watch. She said it was about half past three. When it was put to her that she was 15 minutes out, her memory of the exact time she and Una got off that bus was called into question. But Anne held firm, insisting she wasn't wrong because she remembered looking at the clock when she got home, which was right next to the bus stop. Again, for the prosecution to succeed, it was absolutely essential for them to convince the jury that Dick and Martian were on the lane at the same time as Una. The lads insisted that wasn't possible and lots of people backed them up under oath. Matthew O'Reilly told the jury he and Dick Donnelly were sowing wheat on Coyle's farm that day. After work, he said Dick's car wouldn't start. So he helped him. He gave it a push. According to Matthew, Dick's battered Zephyr spluttered back to life at 20 past six, or maybe 25 minutes past six, half an hour before Una stepped off the bus. Meanwhile, on another part of the farm, Raymond Coyle was pulling Brussels sprouts with Martin Conmey. He remembered Dick arriving to collect Martin sometime between half past six and a quarter to seven. Marty Carrigan's father was next to take the stand. According to him, Dick's car pulled up outside their house sometime after seven o'clock. Again, the Kerrigans lived just off the Dublin Navin Road, about one and a half kilometres from the entrance to the bottom of Porterstown Lane. He remembered Marty leaving the house, with his daughter Katie following him out the door moments later. Here Katie recalls what she told the jury. Martin Conmey and Dick called to our house because they were coming from Curaha and they were picking up Marty. But I went up to the shop with them to get briquettes to light the fire. And uh, I went into the shop and Eileen, my sister, already had got the briquettes. She was just, we met her on the road. She was um, gone on home with them. So I just came back out. They brought me back down to the house. Baron's shop wasn't far from the Kerrigans. It was just down the road and the shopkeeper knew the family well. She remembered Katie coming in that evening at about five past seven. When asked what time Dick dropped her back to the house afterwards, Katie told the jury it would have been about a quarter past seven. So if Una was abducted in the 15-minute window after she got off that bus at 6.53pm, by all accounts so far, Martin and Dick had an ironclad alibi. They simply could not have been on Porterstown Lane when Una went missing. The evidence so far put them two kilometres away. However, the first seeds of doubt were soon sown by Garda John McKeown. Remember him, he claimed he was parked outside Barron's shop when Dick Donnelly's Ford Zephyr pulled up that evening. He told the jury he saw Katie go in and come out a minute or so later. When asked what time Dick's car left Barron's shop, he said, about 6.53. 6.53, he was asked. Yes, he replied. Seven minutes to seven. 
the jurors also heard about the sightings of the suspicious-looking car in the area. Remember Una's cousin, Porik Gohan, told us in an earlier episode what he saw as he walked home along the lane just after 7 o'clock that evening. I just heard something coming behind and we just stepped in and uh, I mean I saw this car coming towards me. Um, beautiful car. There was no there was no noise out of it. Um, and that car just um, crept by us. It wasn't going fast. And it looked straight into the driver. I got a great look at him. Um, this was this middle-aged man, well-dressed, suit, tie, um, well-groomed. Having seen what he'd seen, you'd think Porrick would have been a star witness. But when he took the stand, he was surprised by how little he was asked about the middle-aged man he saw driving the car. So too was his wife, Mary, who attended every day of her brother's trial. I can't remember a lot about it. I can. I can tell. I, yeah, can't, I remember what I you know. told me. His um, evidence, it's not very long. But you told me that one of the things you remembered was when getting out of the witness box was like you wanted to say more about the the man in the car. You didn't even. No, didn't that was, even yeah, I remember that hit yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, I was asked very little. Um, I'm not sure what I said. You were you were asked. Um, the, did you recognise him? And I think you said it was nobody I knew at the time. And then. They didn't, didn't even ask him to describe yeah. him or anything. So did you feel, Porik, looking back on it and maybe stepping down off the witness box, did you feel that you hadn't been afforded that opportunity to tell everything that you knew and remembered from that night? Yeah, I'd love to have, I'd love to have been able to say more. Um, to describe him when I was there properly, mm. um, what he was wearing and uh, descri- describe the car Um but I wasn't, I wasn't um, afforded that opportunity. It was all just all too short. According to the court records from that day of evidence, Porrick described the car he saw driving up the lane as a very big kind of car, brown in colour. When he told the jury he got a good look at the driver, the prosecutor asked if he recognised him. Porrick said he didn't. When Dick's barrister asked him if it was his client driving the car, Porrick said it wasn't. He knew Dick Donnelly and it definitely wasn't him. Porrick wasn't the only witness to feel a bit deflated after taking the stand. Marty's sister Anne Kerrigan felt the same. She, as we now know, went on to marry Dick Donnelly. Her evidence also supported the lad's account of going to Barron's shop after seven o'clock. But she too felt they couldn't get her out of the box quick enough. I remember getting up in the witness box and trying to tell my story. You only answered the questions that they wanted you to answer. It was yes or no. You couldn't tell them what exactly happened. They didn't, they, you answered yes or no, which was very frustrating. Well, every half hour on that particular night was accounted for where they were uh, every half hour from the time they left our house until they came back home at half eleven that night. So where or how they were supposed to have done it and brought that poor girl to the mountains and got back home. And did Dick feel that, I mean, what were his thoughts when he was eventually charged with murder? Because as you say, and it's it's there in black and white and it was at the time, 
there were lots of people, including yourself, who were giving evidence that completely contradicted what the prosecution was trying to say. And they seemed to rely on a couple of statements. I mean, that must have been a source of great frustration for Dick. Or was he confident that the trial would see him vindicated? I think he he, he never expected that he was going to be charged or found guilty of illness, uh, manslaughter or murder. It would be very hard to think on those lines when you had nothing to do with it. You didn't see her. You didn't know anything about her. Even after all that happened, you still think the truth is going to come out. In terms of timings and the sequence of events, Garda McKeown's testimony was significant because by putting Dick's car outside Barron's shop at the earlier time of 6.53, his evidence contradicted the other side's version of events. Despite that, Martin and Dick remained optimistic. Surely, they thought, the jury wouldn't rely on his evidence after hearing everyone else's. But their glasses soon became half empty. As one after the other, the prosecution called its three star witnesses, Sean Riley, Martin Madden and John Shevlin. After working on a building site in Dublin all day, Sean Riley told the jury he got back to his home on Porterstown Lane at about five to seven, roughly the same time Una got off the bus on nearby Ferry House Road. His friend, Martin Madden, called over a few minutes later. Sean said he went outside, got into the car, which was parked at the gate. Soon afterwards, Sean Riley said he noticed a car coming from the direction of Ferry House Road. In a statement made before the trial, he named Dick Donnelly as the driver and Marty Kerrigan as the front seat passenger, but now he was refusing to swear that under oath. Instead, he said he thought the noise of the car might be Dick's, and if it was, he presumed Dick was driving, and if so, he thought he might be driving Marty home. Martin Madden told the jury he also remembered the car passing down the lane. He thought it was yellow in colour. When asked if he saw who was driving it, he said he didn't. According to the prosecutor, Martin Madden's testimony also differed from what he said previously. As a result, he was treated as a hostile witness. In the end, Martin Madden accepted that he did say he thought Dick Donnelly was driving the car, and he also said he thought he saw Marty in the front. Another card up the prosecution's sleeve was 13-year-old John Shevlin, who lived near the Linskys. While in a hay shed around the same time Una went missing, he told the jury he heard a car driving up Porterstown Lane in the direction of Ferry House Road. He said he knew the sound of his neighbours' cars and by the noise it was making, he thought it was Dick Donnelly's. This would have been just before screams were heard coming from some nearby fields. The evidence of Sean Riley, Martin Madden and young John Shevlin was hugely significant. If they were to be believed, you now had Dick's car on Porterstown Lane driving towards the stretch of road that Una would have been walking home. More than that, you had him doing so during that crucial 15-minute window. Martin was horrified by what he heard, especially because he knew it wasn't true. No, that was a shock when I heard what they were saying. 
the, the time we were, was, she would have been picked up and gone at that stage. I and mean, that's what we were hoping on. But she, like, in court, we, 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 there was hope from, from my legal team that, that they prove everything was wrong and that proved that what happened was in trim. The truth would come out. As Martin said there, he just hoped the jury would believe their timings. If they did, they'd know Una was already gone by the time they arrived on Porterstown Lane. His mother gave evidence of him coming home at about 7.15. He was his normal self, she said. Martin's then-girlfriend, Patricia Carey, said he and the boys were in very good spirits when she met them later that evening. Did they look like men who were after doing in some unfortunate girl? She was asked. Not to me, she replied. For the defence, it was vital to get Martin's false confession thrown out. To do so, they had to convince the judge that the damning statement he made at Trimgar the station almost two weeks after Una went missing wasn't made freely. The jury was sent away to allow the lawyers debate the issue. They were now in legal argument. Martin told Mr Justice Henchy that his admissions were beaten out of him. He said there were lies told out of fear of what Detective John Courtney and Gartha Brian Gilday might do to him if he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. The prosecutor said there was nothing to suggest the statement was improperly taken. Gartha Brian Gilday was then called. It was put to him that he was assigned to the case as a strong-armed man. He denied that. He also denied losing his temper during the interrogation. When asked if he repeatedly banged the table, Gartha Gilday said he may have tapped it a bit, but only to make a point not to intimidate or frighten Martin in any way. Did you punch him? He was asked. No, my lord, he replied. It was then put to him that he did punch Martin, twice, in the early hours of the morning after Martin had gone without food or sleep. Certainly not, he said. He denied calling Martin a murderer. He denied shouting at him. In fact, he said he was nothing but courteous towards Martin. Dick Donnelly also accused Gartha Gilday of beating him. He told the judge he must have hit him a dozen times and he also claimed he attacked him with a hot fire poker. Again, Gartha Gilday denied any wrongdoing. Martin just shook his head as the haunting memories of that night came flooding back. Gildy came in and just just looked at me and drew out and I went, and the chair went flying and I went. He'd hit your box. Yeah, he went, he's an unmerciful box. Lunatic, that's what he was. Before that he was banging the table and kicking chairs around the place. I was just waiting for a box. At the time, Gartha Gilday was 47. He'd been a Gartha since he was 21. Martin's barrister asked him if he regarded himself as a bit of an athlete. No, not particularly, he said. Used to play football, he was asked. Football and hurling, he replied. No doubt wondering where this line of questioning was headed. Any weightlifting? No. No. When Dick's barrister later asked him his weight, he said he was about 14 stone. He was then asked to stand up in the box. 
and when he did, he was told he had an enviable lack of middle-aged spread before being asked if he was right-handed or left-handed. Again, with a curious eyebrow raised, he confirmed he was right-handed. And with great glee, Mary now remembers what happened next. I remember Gilday being um, questioned. I think the defence barrister was trying to talk to him about, you know, you like boxing, you were involved in boxing and asked him to close his fist. And I and Gilday wasn't even quick and smart enough to know what was being done to him. Gartha Gilday may have been bemused by the request, but the sight of his tough, sinewy knuckles nestled tightly in his closed fist was striking and very effective. When Detective Gartha John Courtney took the stand, he said he felt they were fair in their dealings with Martin and didn't agree that Gilday was rough and brutal with him. He denied Gilday dragged him from the table into the centre of the room. He denied seeing him knock Martin to the floor with a blow to the face. He denied seeing him dragging Martin to his feet by the hair of his head. Remarkably, it was later claimed that Martin tore his own hair out as he wrestled with his conscience. Detective Courtney said that at two o'clock in the morning, Inspector Hubert Reynolds told them he wanted to speak to Martin alone and that when he returned, he said Martin had made certain admissions. In his evidence, Inspector Reynolds said he had no recollection of threatening to bring the other two fellows back in if Martin didn't tell him the truth. In the end, the judge decided that Martin Connolly's statement saying they did pick Una up at the bridge on Porterstown Lane was admissible. The jury was called back in and the trial resumed. No fists were thrown during that legal argument, but this felt like yet another blow. Arguably, the hardest. See, it was not an, an experience for me that I never thought. I thought when you take the Bible in your hand, you, you'd tell the truth. But it doesn't make any difference. Some guys took a newspaper in their hand and the police denied everything. We never let a finger in them, not a wrong word said. With his false confession allowed in, Martin didn't think things could get any worse. But they soon did. On the 10th day of the trial, his former flatmate, Thomas Mangan, told the jury that Martin confessed to him that Dick had killed Una by accidentally knocking her down. He claimed Martin had a few drinks on him when he told him this in the bedroom they shared in Dublin. He said he just brought it up out of the blue. Sitting in the dock, Martin once again couldn't believe what he was hearing. I don't think he had any choice in the matter because he was taken in as well and spent the whole day inside in, in, in the cell. Thomas Mangan, you, did you share a room with I him? I did share a room with him, yeah, yeah. And he claimed that you had essentially confessed Oh, something about knocked her with a car or, or, and, and left her up in the mountain or something, something like that. He, he wasn't telling me much, but I know in court that's what he said. And it didn't happen? No, never happened. So I, I would have told, kind of like trying to confide with confiding in someone, telling them the truth of what happened in Trim, and all of a sudden the cops pick him up and bring him in and, and use him as a state witness after grueling him the whole day inside there to, to say, just have more evidence for them to get conviction. That's what it seemed like to me. Under cross-examination, Thomas Mangan couldn't remember when he told the guards about this alleged confession. Later, it emerged he was taken to Rathfarnham Garda Station 
at four o'clock on the afternoon of the 19th of January 1972 and kept there for seven hours. The prosecution fiercely challenged claims that he was ill-treated there. Interestingly, after a technical examination of Dick's Ford Zephyr, there was nothing to suggest the car had been in a traffic accident or had knocked somebody down. There was also no evidence of a body being carried in his boot. The case against the lads was entirely circumstantial and would soon be left in the hands of the jurors. Before he sent them away to consider a verdict, Mr Justice Seamus Henchy reminded them of two witnesses in particular, Sean Riley and Martin Madden. He said, and I quote, These two pieces of evidence are much relied on by the prosecution as proving that the accused were in the car that went from Barron's shop up Porterstown Lane, met Unalinsky, something happened which had facial results, that the car turned back and came down Porterstown Lane towards the Navan Road. If that is not proved to your satisfaction, much of the prosecution case goes. And with that, after a gruelling 13-day trial, the jury began its deliberations. It proved to be an anxious wait, as Mary now recalls. We must have just hung around the forecourts and I know the jury came back. They were called back at one stage or something to ask if they'd like tea. And then later on, they came back and they wanted the definition of manslaughter. And that's when everyone, this this is, doesn't look good. And I remember being in the courtroom and Anne Kerrigan, um, she was crying. She was, you know, sitting on the bench and she was crying. And the court clerk or something, one of the staff, you know, they were all just hanging around waiting and he just, he was nearby and he came over. He said, don't be crying, he said. That's, he said, they're not going to be found guilty. There was nothing, he said. There was no evidence. Don't be, don't be worried, he said. It'll be okay. And I remember, like, along the quays that time, there was no traffic at that hour of the night. The place was deserted. And I remember I'd crossed over the road and I was just leaning in, over the wall looking into the Liffey just out there and Pori came up beside me and asking like you know what was happening and I told him about them they came in looking for a definition of manslaughter and I was crying and just remember him like you know with his arm around me and then we had to go back in whenever you know the for the verdict. At 3 a.m. on Saturday, the 15th of July, 1972, everyone was told to return to the Central Criminal Court. Having poured over the evidence for 12 hours, the jurors had reached a verdict. The public gallery soon swelled as those who had gone out to stretch the legs raced back to the courtroom as quickly as they could. And then, after what felt like an eternity, the jurors filed back in and took their seats. A 
collective intake of breath sucked the air out of the room as the foreman was asked if they had reached a decision. Yes, was the reply. Martian and Dick braced themselves in the dock. You find the accused men not guilty of the murder of Una Linsky, but guilty of her manslaughter. Is that a decision of you all? Yes, my lord. Jesus Christ, Lenny. Fell through the seat. Guilty of manslaughter, you know. When, when the verdict came out, it just, everything went blank. I couldn't believe what was happening. I looked over at my solicitor and, you know, you're kind of living on hope that God wouldn't allow something, like someone to be convicted for something they didn't do. My poor mother used to be on across the road praying in a church across the road that justice would be done, you know. You'd hope your legal team will fight your corner. It didn't work out. When the verdict was called out, um, I knew there was commotion behind me. And I looked back and my dad's a tall man. He was a tall man and he was standing, you know, with his back. He was against the wall and he was collapsing. He was collapsing. And I just looked back just to see the frame just going down. And then they, the jury were told, you know, we couldn't leave. Like the jury were dismissed and they filed past us. And I always remember looking at them. They did not look happy. But I remember looking at them and thinking, ye are the most stupidest looking people I have ever seen. They looked bewildered. And my next memory then, it was me who gave the news to my mother. And my mother just went hysterical. She started roaring, crying. And I was crying. The scene was... It was awful. With the trial now over, Martin and Dick were taken into custody. At their sentence hearing a few days later, Martin's father told Mr Justice Henchy that his son never gave him any trouble at home. He described him as a hard worker and while he knew he took a drink, he said he'd never seen his son drunk. Dick Donnelly's father described his son as outstanding. He said he was a great man around the home, never had to look for money, and always handed over his wage package. Having heard the words spoken on their behalf, the judge decided to impose a shorter sentence than he would otherwise. He jailed them both for three years. Martin just couldn't get his head around it. They had done no wrong. I remember that my solicitor, I think it was, was it Mara Noonan from Atboy, hmm. she was our solicitor, and I remember look, saying to her, I said, Mara, I said, I didn't do anything wrong. I was crying. And all she would say to me is, uh, oh, it's, it's only three years. You'll be out in two years and three months. That's, and I looked at her and I said, oh, Christ. She didn't, she, it was three years to me at the time. It, it was three years. I didn't know it would be anything with remission or anything like that. But that's what she said to me. She says, won't be, you'll, be, you'll be out in two years and three months. And I, said, that's I didn't say I wasn't even able to talk then. Was, that wasn't really worse to say that to me. And did your family get an opportunity to say goodbye before you were taken away? Uh, no, I can't remember that either. 
I can't remember mum and dad being there saying goodbye to me. There could have been now. I can't, I can't recollect that, you know. And what about that first night then in prison? As you say, like, if you've done something and you're punished for it, mm. there is a level of acceptance. It's yeah, not nice, yeah, yeah. but there's a level of acceptance. Mm. But when you haven't, and you know in your heart and soul mm. you haven't, mm. what was it like when they locked that cell door behind you that first night? I just I remember I remember going into the cell and just crying. And then there was this thing after a stages, certain stages and the whole thing. I I I'd say, Well look at Martin. It's your own fault, just a weak person admitting to something you didn't do, but I kept playing myself, you know, for everything. Which was compounding the whole bloody thing, you know. And then I was kind of lonely. I used to draw pictures of my home, you know, he's got and, and and you stick them on the wall just to, you know, kind of feel like you were, you were at home, you know, but oh, I don't know, it's just, just being locked up for something I didn't do. And did, did you still hold out hope that somebody was going to open that door and say, we've made a terrible mistake? No, no, that never came into my mind, no. I used, I was religious back then, it's probably just my Lord, the race of my mom, I just pray and hope that the person that did do it would give himself up or something. something. I lived in hope in there that something would crop up. With Martin and Dick now in prison, albeit for a crime they didn't commit, the people of Porterstown Lane tried to get on with their lives as best they could. But life on the lane would never be the same. Within months, the Linsky farm was put up for sale and they moved away soon afterwards so many lives destroyed when would it end none of us forgot it but we didn't spend loads of time talking about it either i don't we weren't able actually in the next and final episode of inside the crime we'll find out what happened after the boys were sent to jail they knew they were innocent they knew they shouldn't be there but would the system set them free it was cruel just getting through, trying to live life, saying I'm accused of this. It was like I felt there's nothing could be done. I just had to live with this the rest of my life. And with the wrong men behind bars, nobody was looking for the actual killer. Case closed as far as the murder squad was concerned. Would justice for Una be lost forever? It will no. never go away. Maybe if they find out who did do it, it might give us just peace of mind. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. We're really confident that somebody out there knows something or saw something that could help advance Una Linsky's murder investigation. If you are that person, please contact the Garda Confidential line on 1800 treble six treble one you can also email us at inside the crime at newstalk.com it's never too late inside the crime was hosted by me frank graney produced by ashley moore with sound mixing by lachlan hart